let's jump into our, our uh, message time today. And, I, and if you weren't, haven't been living on a rock, you've seen what's been going on in the news this past week, un- undoubtedly, with uh, President Obama coming out in favor of homosexual marriage. Now, notice I didn't say gay marriage, um, and I didn't say same-sex marriage, because it's all about who controls the term. Um, when, you, when you see that, I mean, I even saw a pastor this past week in the Christian Post, which is an online newspaper. He came out and he, wrote, he said, I'm the gayest man I know. And his idea was, is I'm going to reclaim the meaning of the word, which meant happy. And it doesn't mean homosexuality. And even same sex makes it sound less obtrusive than what it really is. Now, what's sad about it is that, I mean, it is a sin. Homosexuality is a sin. You say that in our world today, and it's very considered to be intolerant. And some people think that you are uneducated, you're unintelligent, you're archaic, you're backwards. My, my, and my personal favorite, you're a bigot. It's my personal favorite. Um, and with President Obama coming out in favor of that, and I, there has, it's generated a firestorm of sorts between uh, him and those who are standing in his corner, celebrities, Hollywood, many within the, the public sphere, and those within the church. And if you've, ever, if you've ever been on one of those message boards on like CNN.com, you'd see that the, the rhetoric is vitriolic. It is hatred going back and forth. And there is, there is no middle ground within this. And those even who take a stand for such things, you're considered to be guilty before there's even a trial. And it doesn't even matter if it's homosexuality. I don't want to just isolate homosexuality, but we could talk about divorce. We could talk about, we could talk about adultery. We could talk about fornication. We could talk about whatever sin you want to name and put it in the category. And this world is going to have a very hard time with our stances according to the Word of God. It's just the way that it is. The world and God's kingdom are totally, they're polar opposites, and they're fighting against one another. But I guarantee that if you take a stand for Christ in the midst of this world, you're going to be considered guilty even before the trial has even started. Your faith is on trial in, and I mean, every single day. We are at war. And that war is taking place on so many different fronts. It's on the home front. It's at your workplace. It's at our schools. It's everywhere we go. We are in a battle of epic proportions. And many Christians think that we can get out of this war by shoving our head in the sand like ostriches, hoping that the world will just pass us by. And we can't. We have to battle. But we have to battle wisely. Because we are entered into this trial, this courtroom as it is, this this trial of public opinion where your faith is put on trial. Now today, we're going to see three trials. We're going to see the trial of Jesus when Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin. And at the same time, we're going to be looking at another man on a different type of trial, and that is Peter. And they are deliberately juxtaposed with one another. It's interesting how Mark weaves this thread together to show Jesus on trial. He's going to show Peter on trial, and through both of them, we're going to see ourselves on trial. And we're going to see what our faith is like. Are we with Peter? And I think many of us are going to see that we are a lot like Peter. But we also need to see that we can find victory through Jesus. So I would encourage you, as you've you've already turned with that passage, I want to jump right in to our text today and see what this trial is all about. So we're starting off in verse 53, and we see what is going 
on. We see that Jesus is led to the, uh, the high priest in verse 53. Now, Mark doesn't tell us who that is, but we know through the other gospel accounts that it's a guy named Caiaphas. Now, before, John chapter 18 records that Jesus had already been to another trial before that. Each gospel offers a different account of what is going on. Not that they're differing in that he's just highlighting a different thing. One chooses to highlight one thing, another one chooses to highlight a different thing. Now, John 18 says that Jesus had already gone to the house of this guy named Annas. Now, Annas was the high priest. You've got to understand what the high priest is. This is the top dog. This is the ruler of all of Israel. It's a religious ruler, and it's also a political ruler at the same time. But we know that they're under the rule of what country at this time? Rome, okay? Rome is, is who is leading, and they didn't like Annas, so they deposed him as king. A guy by the name of Valerius Gallerus, who was the predecessor to the guy named Pontius Pilate, removed Annas as high priest. And then he put in his guy, which was Caiaphas, it also happened to be Annas' son-in-law. Now, Caiaphas is, is, is the high priest, but just as, as would probably happen in the here and now, the Jewish people, even though the Romans took their guy out, he was still around, they still really considered him to be the high priest. So they took him to Annas' house, and then from Annas' house, they send Jesus to Caiaphas' house. Now, this is done in the middle of the night. This is a kangaroo court. They had put together the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin consisted of elders, scribes, and the high priests. That's why it says in our text, high priests. It's plural. Normally, there's just one, but there's considered kind of like co-high priest in that, again, Caiaphas is the high priest, but they're pretty looking at Annas as the same way. Now, scribes were individuals that were trained like lawyers. They are trained as experts in the Jewish law. And they're, they're there. And then again, you've got elders who are also known as Jewish landowners. Now, these guys are all coming together, and they make up, there's about 70 of them. There are 70 of them. If they all show up, there's 70 of them. But like many different church meetings, not everybody shows up. <laughs> so there has to be enough for a quorum. And they have enough for a quorum. And they set this trial in the middle of the night, and Jesus is taken to the house of the high priests. Look at verse 53. And again, we see all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. All means enough for a quorum. Doesn't mean that every single one of them was probably there. Verse 54. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, as he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is an elevated uh, city. It's very high up. It's also got a desert climate. It gets cold at night. It's really hot in the day, and it gets very cold at night. I've been there. You need a coat on, I mean a jacket, because it, it gets pretty chilly at night. And Peter's cold. He's already been up pretty late. He's already gone through a huge emotional just up and down roller coaster. Remember, he had been with Jesus. They had celebrated the Passover Seder together, and Jesus had foretold all the stuff that was going on. The place, Jerusalem, was packed out. It was a party atmosphere. Remember, the, the city had gone between 100 and 200,000 people and swelled to upwards of a million people as people were coming from all over back to Jerusalem. So it's got this, this kind of party atmosphere in the air, but then it totally takes a dramatic turn as they have been, they're worn out, they've been going all day long, and then Jesus takes them into the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that? We saw that last week where Jesus is speaking to them and keeps telling them to watch and pray, but they keep falling asleep. 
And then Jesus said that his betrayer is coming, and we all know that was Judas. And I can't imagine how badly that they felt that moment in time. What's going on? There's all this confusion generated. All the disciples had totally taken off, except for two that follow Jesus at a distance. Now we hear that Peter follows Jesus at a distance. Now the book of John says that they, there were two that made their way to the court of the high priest, his house, the courtyard of the high priest. One of them was known to the high priest. One of the disciples was. We know that to be John. John, through his relationship with the household of Caiaphas, gets Peter led into the courtyard. And these soldiers are there warming themselves. These servants are there. Again, it's a late night. They're probably wondering all what's going on, why they've been brought there at this hour. And they're warming himself by the fire. Now, verse 55. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, what I want us to see there is if we're entering into this trial, we have three things that we need to consider. The first is this. We need to identify who we're fighting. Who is the enemy? And here, we need to see that it's the prosecution who's put us on trial. So we're fighting the prosecution. Write that down. That's number one in your notes. We're fighting the prosecution. Those that are coming and railing against Jesus. Now, as Christians, the Bible says clearly to us that we have three enemies. The world, this fallen world, this philosophical system in which we find ourselves and the values therein. The flesh, this sinful body in which we inhabit. And the devil, the powers of darkness and his many different minions, Satan and his, his demons, which are fallen angels. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all three at times can rail against Christ. But what we see specifically in this instance, in this prosecution, is the devil, remember he was working through Judas to kind of set this whole thing up, but it's mainly we're seeing the world. And the world is, is fighting and railing against Christ. Now what is the world saying to us? And what is the world saying about Jesus? See, as we're, we're fighting, when our faith is on trial, we must make sure that we're, we're fighting the prosecution. And we have to see that those who oppose Christ are constantly finding ways to discredit him finding ways to discredit him look at back at our text we see that they come up with many different false witnesses they were trying to create and find out why and say that jesus jesus was not the christ all these reasons why now i don't know if you've ever interacted with people like this but this is going on today in your life people are constantly trying to find ways to discredit him and where ground zero is in a lot of places is college. Now, I've gone to three undergraduate institutions, and I've gone to three graduate schools. I have seen firsthand how professors war against our children's faith. And if statistics are true, and I'm not exactly sure if they are, but they say that 88% of children that are raised within the church, once they get into their first year of college, leave the faith. 88%. Now, I'm not sure if that statistic's right, but I'm sure it's around there. 
The question is why? Is because we are failing to prepare our young people for the war that they are entering into. And they're entering into a war zone. I can't tell you how many young people I meet that step into a freshman level class and they have this big professor who stands up, who looks like he knows everything, and the students are all around him, and he totally starts bashing Christ and the Word of God. Over and over and over again. And he makes people look dumb and uneducated. And a lot of students aren't equipped to handle those answers. I just mentioned last week that I got into an interaction on Facebook. I got roped into it. I don't like getting roped into discussions like this, so don't rope me in to your discussions. But this girl had posted something that she shouldn't have posted. And it, it, uh, it was a f- Facebook friend of mine, and, her, and she called out a friend publicly in this forum, which was a dumb thing to do. And then she started getting into this discussion... And her friend had said all of these other things to her privately about who Christ is. And and I'm reading it, and all I'm sitting here doing is going, this is what you learn in a freshman-level course. After having been a youth pastor, I have met so many young people who hear this freshman, they they, they learn this stuff at college, they come home and they want to spew it out. You ever had that? Maybe you were that way. You learn all this stuff, and you think your family is suddenly uneducated because they didn't know about this and that and this and that. And I, I remember not only interacting with this girl and trying to set her straight, but I remember another student coming to me, um, saying to me how he had left the faith. I'd had him when he was in junior high, and I'd moved and gone off to New England and kind of lost touch with him. And when I came back, he wanted to set up a meeting with me to tell me how he had left Christianity. He was very proud of that fact as he was parting it up at Bradley is where he was at. He was just parting it up. And he just said, you know, I've grown past it. I don't have that religious, uh, that inkling anymore. It's all a creation of man. It's all myth. And I said, well, let me challenge you for a moment, because you can't just take it at face value. You have to always ask the question that's behind the question. And what is he saying? I said, well, why do you think that it's a creation of man? Well, because I'm educated now. Really? You've been to freshman year of school? Okay. You're suddenly educated. All right. Let me ask you a question. Where did you learn that from? Well, my professors. I said, do you think your professor has an agenda? He said, no, they're just telling me the truth. And I'm like, you're the biggest fool I've ever met in my life. I know. I've been to the schools. Every professor has an agenda. Well, I'm going to tell you that right now. Every single one. I debate professors in personal conversations all the time. And I can honestly say that just because you have initials behind your name doesn't make you smart. It can make you a wise idiot. And I mean that in the best possible way, because education is good, but you got to make sure that you're being, get the complete picture of things, especially in our world today. And understand that people are going to do everything in their power to discredit Jesus. They're going to go after the Bible. They're going to try to present him as legend. They're going to put up loony scholars that are complete morons that have no faith whatsoever, that are indulging in all kinds of sin and present them as experts about who Jesus is, especially at Easter and Christmas. I'm amazed at the guys that I see that come on CNN that are considered to be religious scholars and experts. They're heretics. We have to make sure that we're being discerning because we un- and have to understand that we are seeing that the world is always seeking and finding ways to discredit him. That's exactly what the world is doing. 
over and over again. They're seeking false witnesses, false testimony, and they're just putting it up, up and up. Now, it's interesting to note here that these witnesses did not agree. Jewish law stipulated that in cases of capital punishment, that there had to be, uh, there had to be unified testimony. There had to be at least two witnesses, and there, if there was one simple small degree or discrepancy between them, then the case was thrown out and the person was, was, was to, be, to be released. But here, even though the evidence is, goes in Jesus' favor, they don't care. They keep bringing other expert or other false witness and false witness, and they're not agreeing, and it's driving the high priest nuts. Finally, he's exasperated because Jesus is not saying anything in response to it. So finally, he decides to see if he can approach Jesus to get Jesus to incriminate himself. So he, he says to him, he says to him, have you no answer in verse 60 to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent, made no answer. He didn't need to respond. He didn't need to. Because it was all bunk. But the high, pri- and the high priest asked him, point blank, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Notice he doesn't say the son of God. He says son of the blessed. This is his way of not saying the name of God. So even in the midst of this, as he's trying to incriminate this man, he's trying to ma- maintain this illusion of godliness. Rather than take God's name in vain, he calls him the son of the blessed. And to this, Jesus responds. I am, because he was guilty of this one. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of, the, of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So what I want us to see here, as we're walking through this, that those who oppose, oppose Christ are constantly finding ways to discredit him, and they're forfeiting truth to deny him. Write that down. Forfeiting truth to deny him. Truth is the Christian's friend. All truth is God's truth. But the enemy will forfeit truth to deny him. They will start with a stacked deck. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Jesus Seminar. How many of you ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? Raise your hand. Not too many. Okay. The Jesus Seminar is a very liberal group of scholars that came together and, and embarked on what's called the New Quest or the Third Quest, a search for what is known as the historical Jesus. Now, what that means is, is the historical Jesus, it's, that is opposed, in their mind, to the Jesus of faith. They think this man, the man of faith, is legendary, that he's a legend, and that Jesus of history is something completely, or someone completely different. So what these scholars did is they came together, and they, they, they had these beads, this bead system. It's pretty, pretty interesting and intricate what they did. They would read a passage about Jesus or something that he had said, and they would take a red bead, which indicated that the voter believed Jesus did say the passage quoted or something very much like it. And if they put that in the little, little pot there, that gave them three points. For that, that, that meant that was, we, we believe that he said this. And they examined 500 statements and events. Then they took pink beads, and that indicated the voter believed Jesus probably said something like the passage. You got two points for that. Or gray beads indicated the voter believed Jesus did not say the passage, but it contains Jesus' ideas. That's one point. Or they took black beads, which indicated the voter believed Jesus did not say the passage, and it comes from later admirers or a different tradition. Zero points. Now, 
It sounds very educational. It sounds very interesting. It sounds really almost like a very big, bad game of bingo. But what they did is they, they said that we think Jesus said this. We're, we're sure that he said that. We don't know if he said this. And then they add all the points together, and they say this is legitimate about Jesus, and this is illegitimate. But the premise itself is flawed. And here's why. They started off together before they even did the beads, and they said anything that Jesus said that, it, that would be about his godhood doesn't count, or if it, any miracles don't count. So when you start off your premise being flawed, the foundation flawed, everything else is going to be flawed. And these guys are put up in the world as experts. Don't listen. Let my people think. All too rare, I mean, all too often, Christians are considered to be dumb and uneducated. Now, I'm not saying you have to have a graduate degree. You don't. You just have to know the Word of God and a mind that's been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Because God can help show the wisdom of the wise is foolishness in the sight of God. Amen. So, we see that the world will do anything to forfeit truth, to deny him, and they will also formulate ways to make him look dumb. It's interesting to note what they do to Jesus. After Jesus incriminates himself, in their mind, the high priest tore his garments, which is a sign of great grief, and said, what further witnesses do we need? Basically, we don't need any more because he said it himself, even though the witnesses we do have are complete morons. But they, they, they condemned him as deserving death. And then notice in verse 65 what they did. Some began to spit on him, which shows derision and contempt. Cover his face to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Now it's interesting, what was going on there is it was an old interpretation of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 through 4, which stated that the Messiah could judge by smell without the need of sight. So what these guys did were showing that he's really not the Messiah, because if he did, if he truly was the Messiah, we'd hit him and he'd know who it was. Now, did Jesus know who was hitting him? Oh, yeah. I would hate to have been them when I stepped into eternity. But they were trying to make him look dumb. And when you're... In, when you testify about who Christ is, people will try to make you look dumb. They'll say, how could you possibly believe that? You believe the Bible? Really? Haven't people shown that it's a myth? Jesus is just legendary. Really? He should grow up a little bit. These are interactions that personally that I've had. But I stop. I stop and I think and I said, well, how is the Bible a myth? Usually they don't have an answer. And I said, let me show you how the Bible is the word of God. You've got 40 different authors uh, talking about over a 1,500-year period of time, all about the same thing. They're all pointing to one person, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the true son of God. Do I believe the Bible? Yes, I do. And I'm willing to die for it. Are you? And that usually changes the conversation a little bit. But when you're living your life and your family, and you're trying to witness to other people about who Jesus is, people are going to try to make you look dumb. They're going to try to put up a bold front. They might cite their credentials or the fact they went to school or all the things that they've done, and they're going to try to shame you to make you feel stupid. Don't give in to it. Continue to testify about who Jesus is. Be honest and forthright. Be bold. Don't back down. 
and know that God is with you and his spirit is, is going to be with you. And, and, and maybe, who knows, they might just be putting up a front. I often find that, that most people that have this front right behind them, God, they're just waiting for God to test or God to show himself to be God in their life. To show that he really truly is the Christ. So they're going to try to make you look dumb. Formulate ways to make you look dumb. They see that all the time within the public sphere. Making Christians look dumb and educated. But they even forget that some of the greatest scientists, Christian scientists, thinkers, and inventors were Christians. Names such as Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Blaise Pascal, Isaac Newton, Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, George Washington Carver, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Francis Collins, C. Everett Koop, Alistair McGrath, Alvin Plantinga, and a host of others. See, don't despair if people try to make you look dumb. If they try to do it to Jesus, they're going to try to do it to you. And we must remember that our faith is not dependent upon our own human wisdom, but on the power of God, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who was wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the foolish the wisdom, foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. See, not only will the prosecution try to make you look, look dumb, but they are also constantly focusing on how to destroy him. Focusing on how to destroy him. Notice from the very beginning our text. When they came together, they wanted to, we're seeking, in verse 55, we're seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They weren't trying to find out if he really was the Son of God. They didn't care. It was a threat to their way of life. You see that time and time again in the scripture. I'm amazed, like in the book of Acts chapter 19, when Jesus is preached, one instance is one whole culture they had these blacksmiths who were idol makers. And when they saw that their, their pocketbook, their checks, their, their bank account was threatened, they railed against Jesus. See, when Jesus threatens the bottom line, people respond. When Jesus challenges them in their sin with his lordship, people are going to respond and want to annihilate and get rid of him. They want to eliminate him from the public sphere. They want to eliminate him from our schools, which is why prayer is not allowed, which is why in your workplace you're not allowed to testify about who Jesus is, is that Jesus is the most, he is seen as the biggest enemy, enemy number one, greater than any terrorist the world has ever seen. Because he is a threat to the way of life of every single person present. And the world is constantly seeking ways to destroy him, and by implication, you. People are going to go behind your back. They're going to gossip about you. They're going to seek to demean you. They're going to seek to, to bring disrepute into your life. You must be able to stand for truth, for God, no matter what. But as we look at the prosecution, we also have to look inward. Because our problem isn't always with the world. You know, I, I, I struggle with a lot of the things that I see in the world, but it's the world being the world. Who I struggle with the most 
the person that I struggle more than anyone else in the world is probably the exact same person you struggle with. Myself. Not that you struggle with me. I'm sure you do. But it's the person in the mirror. That's who I struggle with the most. My own flesh. My own sin. See, we must make sure that we're not just fighting the prosecution, but we have to be focusing on our own problem. Our own problem. And through Peter, we can see that we have a problem just like Peter did. Peter had a problem. Peter, Peter was, again, a lot like us. How many of us have said boldly, I'm, I will follow Jesus. No, none go, though none go with me, I will follow. I will do what you want me to do. And the next thing you know, we're, we're out doing the very sin that we know that we shouldn't be doing. Every one of us in this room, I guarantee, have done that at one time or another. We have all, at one time or another, been guilty of horrible hypocrisy. And that can come out in many different ways. It doesn't have to be just those open, open, those public sins, but it's those private sins of judgment, pride, envy, covetousness. Those are much more difficult to pin down. We have to be facing our own problem. Now, we do have a problem. And if we were to put, we were put on the stand to testify to the validity of who Jesus is, what would the prosecution do? Undoubtedly, it would bring up our past. One of Satan's names is accuser. And in the book of Revelation, he is called the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them or accuses them day and night before our God, Revelation 12.10. He will accuse us by bringing up our past and how bad we fall short of God's glory. And undoubtedly, that's what he did with Peter. See, Peter, like Peter, we have a problem with identifying with the Savior. We have a problem with identifying with the Savior. I want us to look at the text with Peter. We're in Mark chapter 14. Remember, Peter was following at a distance, although he was following. And it's interesting to note, by the way, when we see in verse 53, just go back to that for a minute, they start off with Jesus before the council, and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and scribes would come together. In verse 54, Mark deliberately puts that there, as, as I mentioned at the onset, to juxtapos juxtaposition Jesus with Peter and show that these trials are going on side by side. So what Peter is doing with these denials is going on at the exact same time Jesus is being grilled. So these are going on moment by moment, blow by blow. So Peter had followed him at a distance. We understand that he's warming his hands. Now, in verse 66, Peter was below in the courtyard. He was probably within eye's view. He had to have been within eye's view of seeing what was going on with Jesus. When one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were also with the Nazarene Jesus. Now, it doesn't come out in English, but in Greek, it's, it's totally derogatory. Because someone who was considered to be a Nazarene was considered to be a hillbilly. My apology to the hillbillies in the room. But he was. That's when we see when, when Jesus was uh, early in his ministry, they said that Jesus was from Nazareth. And remember the response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? They're like banjo-playing people. Uh, forgive me for the people that play banjos. Okay? Sorry. Sorry, Carl. I'm going to walk over here now. Um, but but there, that was the, the mindset. He goes, you're a Nazarene. You were with him. Like, you're, you're a bumpkin. You were with him, right? 
And Jesus, what does Peter respond with? He, he responds uh, in verse 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him, began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. One of the other gospels gives the, they, they say, For your accent betrays you. So he had an accent. It gave kind of the way where he was from. Or he's from Chicago. You know, Chicago accent. We have an accent here, right? You know, dub bears. <laughs> There's an accent that gave him away as being from Galilee. People could totally tell where he was from. Like, hey, whoa, no, 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 no. You were with him. I know it was you. Now, in the very first instance, when the servant girl approaches him and Peter denies it, what does he do? What does he do? Did you see what he did? He mo- Well, he curses himself, yes, but he does something else. He moves to the gateway. So he's moving out of the courtyard, and he moves to the gateway. You know, it's interesting when we sin, that starts to distance us from the Savior. That's what happens. When we start to sin, we start distancing ourselves from the Savior. This is why, what is the first thing that people want to do? And maybe you've done this, because I know I have. You sin on Saturday night, what's the one thing you don't want to do the next day? Go to church. Why? Because you don't want to be around God's people. You don't want to feel conviction of sin. You don't want to feel guilt or shame or any of those things. And we, it starts distancing ourselves. That's what Peter does. I don't know what you're talking about as he's moving away from the fire to the gateway. He's distancing self, himself more and more from Jesus. Now, what happens in the middle of that is he distances himself. He hears the rooster, right? He hears a crow, right? That was a pretty bad chicken impression, so, so I'm going to stick with my day job. Um, okay? But the cock crows. The rooster crows. Now, that should have been, like for us, that's a wake-up call. Because Jesus had told him, before the the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny that you know me tres, three times. You're going to deny that you know me. Now, undoubtedly, roosters were a common occurrence. I mean, it's not like it just appeared on this day and the rooster, you know, they heard him all the time. But this was a wake-up call, and Mark leaves that in there to show that Peter should have woken up to where he was at. need to be conscious of our spiritual condition. It's a wake-up call. Look where you're at. That's what Mark wants us to understand, is that it's a wake-up call. We need to be recognizing our spiritual condition. Do we recognize where we're at spiritually? Let me ask you that right now. Where are you at, spiritually speaking? Now, several years ago, I had a 1986 Grand Am GXE, blue two-door, sweet V6. I was in high school, had this car, and I didn't know much about anything about cars, really. I was, I was 16, 17 years old, maybe 17 by the time I had this car, and I'd worked for it, and I'd, I'd, I'd had this car, and I, I remember when I had automotive problems, I went to my uncle, because I noticed my car was redlining. And I was always told, you turn the heat on, it was like August. Turn the heat on to get the heat off the engine block so the engine would cool down, right? 
So I'm driving to him. He's like, I can't fix it. Let's take it to the garage in town. We were out in the middle of the country. We had to drive it to this uh, Solomon, Illinois, a garage in Solomon, Illinois. And we're driving along. We're just puttering around like 25 miles an hour, going down the highway, having to, the heat is cranking. It's like 90 degrees outside. And we're driving along. And as soon as the engine heats up, we have to pull over on the side of the road. And a, and a drive that should take us 15 minutes is now taking us almost over an hour. My, un- my uncle is so frustrated, he, and we're at the edge of town. The garage is on the other side of town, and he says, just drive. And I said, well, the, the needle's creeping up. He's like, just drive. It'll be okay. So we're driving along, and I'm seeing the needle, and I'm looking at him. He's like, just go. I'm, I'm looking at him, and it's getting higher and higher and higher. And he's like, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Next thing you know, the cabin is filled with black smoke. And flames are coming out of my hood. <laughs> and I pull over, and we're, like, trying to do all this, you know. And see, many of us, what, what's the lesson here? Many of us need to pay attention when we're redlining spiritually. Are you redlining spiritually right now? Now, here's, here's a few things to see if you're redlining spiritually. You don't go to God right away after you sin. If you fail to keep a short account of sin, be sure that you will build up a layer of resistance the longer that you stay away from confession and repentance and fellowship. Keep a short li- list on sin and do business with God immediately. Also, allowing yourself to drift into temptation. See, we all sin in many ways. We must know the triggers that lead us to there. If we know we have a propensity to a certain sin or dent we talked about, we need to build a defense against it because the devil is looking for ways to devour you. Here's the third one. Neglect the Bible. As D.L. Moody once said about the Bible, the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. The Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. If you begin to grow lax in your Bible reading, sin isn't far away. Four, here's another one, giving yourself over to anger. If you notice that you're continually making excuses for your sin, then you are in the danger zone. Adam blamed Eve for his sin. We have a tendency to blame others. Instead, we must be like David, who said, For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, that you, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Here's a sixth one. Relying on anyone else rather than God. If you're relying on other people for your faith, your friends or your family, then you're in the danger zone. Seven, your zeal has abated. If you feel that God is far away, the question you must ask yourself is this. Who moved? Because I guarantee Your sin, just like Peter's, distanced you from God because you moved. It's because of our sin or unbelief. And if that's the case, then we must follow the the words of the book of Revelation chapter 2. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and do the works that you did at first to return to your first love. Number eight, ordering your life around anything else than the Lord. Each of us has an idol of some sort, something we bow down to, something that controls our joy, something that gives we give prominence or preeminence to, something that we want to delight or find pleasure in rather than Christ. If our life is not ordered around God and His Word, then we're in the danger zone. Number nine, neglecting prayer and fellowship. If you find yourself not praying or wanting to be around God's people, then you've drifted into the danger zone. Without worshiping with God's people, our zeal flags, and we're more susceptible to sin. And number ten, being envious of others. If you find yourself continually comparing yourself to others, then know that for good or for bad, then you're in a dangerous place. If you envy what God has blessed someone with or an accomplishment that they have made, be careful. Contentment is the cure for envy. 
And that can only be found in realizing and accepting what God has given you. Now, those are just ten ways to look within the danger zone, not even included within your notes. That's for free. Now, let's continue on. I want us to see another thing about Peter. When they called him a Nazarene or a Galilean, there was a humiliation there that he didn't like. No one likes to be made to feel like they are dumb. Now, see, Peter's other problem is that he had a, a, a problem experiencing humiliation of self. Experiencing humiliation of self. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you willing to be humiliated for, on the, for the name of Christ? Are you, are you willing to have someone call you an idiot or a fool at your workplace or school? Are you willing to be ostracized from your coworkers, your colleagues, or your friends? Are you willing to? See, I'm amazed at Spurgeon. I've been reading his biography for some time. He was one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century. And there was a period of time, actually, for the most, of his, most of his ministry, this guy dealt with so much criticism. People were saying he was an idiot. People said that he was, he was uneducated. He was uncouth. And they started selling his reputation. They questioned his motives. They thought he was trying to do it to make money. And it was ran in the papers that way. And he, he said this about his reputation that was pretty phenomenal. He said, if I must lose that, his reputation, then let it go. It is the dearest thing I have, but it shall go too. If, like my master, they shall say I have a devil and am mad. He was willing to give it up. It's pretty phenomenal that he would do that. Are we willing to experience humiliation and wear that as a badge of honor when someone says that we are a fool for Christ? We should. Just as the disciples considered it to be blessed that they were beat for the name of the Lord. When people call you names, consider yourself blessed and wear it as a badge of honor. Because just as Jesus was called names and marginalized, so too now are you sharing in his suffering. Now, Peter did all those things bad, but he set an example in repenting from sin. In repenting from sin. In verse 72, he broke down and wept. Now, this wasn't worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow. We can see that from the remaining aspects of Peter's life, especially in his interaction with Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead in John chapter 21. We need to, to have the godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Don't just think because you, t you cry, that means you're repentant. Because Esau, as we read in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, he, as the, Hebrews 12 says this, about him. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. See, he was immoral, unholy, he sold his birthright, he cried, and he pleaded. He had remorse, but he didn't have repentance. There's a big difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is sorry for what one really did, but not refuses to change. Repentance means that I'm sorry for it, and I'm willing to make a life change. I'm going to turn and submit everything and do exactly what God wants me to do. Now, as we think about what God wants us to do, we need to look at the example of Jesus and follow his precedent. That's number three within your notes. 
See, all lawyers are always looking for precedents that have been made within a court of law. As they defend their client, they're trying to find a precedent, something that, that set the, the bar uh, for law and what should be followed. And Jesus sets the, the precedent for us that when our faith is under trial, this is how we should respond. We need to be following Jesus' example. Je- following Jesus' precedent involves preparing our hearts prayerfully. Preparing our hearts prayerfully. Now, this isn't in our text for today, but was in our text last week in verse 32 through 41. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he knew the trial that was about to come upon him. And what did he do? He prayed. He poured out his heart to God. What he, he was feeling and the frustration and the doubt that he had, he poured it out. And that is an example for us. That is, we're getting ready, or we ever find ourselves under, under trial, we should be praying. Praying our, preparing our hearts prayerfully. And not only that, we need to be make sure that we are maintaining our conscience clearly. Maintaining our conscience clearly. Verse 61 of Mark 14 says that he remained silent and made no answer. Even when the false accusations were going. Now, if someone falsely accused, falsely accused you of something, how are you going to respond? Are you going to designate it with a pl- reply? Could you stay silent? in the middle of that, and let your conscience be your guide? Or are you dependent upon what other people think about you? Which are you? I mean, Satan is going to run your name through the mud and throw you out and try to sully you publicly. See, I'm reminded of the, fir- the second pastor I ever worked with, a man by the name of Joel Rose. And Joel had been the pastor of a church in Tama, Iowa, population 2,700 people. And, and during that time, as he was pastor, the youth pastor came up with an idea to do an outreach to the community for the teens. They were going to have a youth rally night where there was going to be pizza, there was going to be a speaker and a gospel invitation. Now, at the same time, the volleyball team in the high school made the state finals. And in a small town like that, when there's an athletic event of that magnitude, the whole town goes. So they they came with this dilemma. Do we have this event or do we not? Do we have this event and hoping that some kids might show up or do we just cancel it because we know that no one's going to show up? They elected to have the event. So the night came, and to their surprise, 200 kids showed up. It was amazing. They had the pizza. They had a gospel invitation. I think there was like 75 kids that came to know Jesus that night, if not more. It was an amazing time. That was Friday night. Saturday, he's just basking. Joel is basking in what God had did. On Sunday, they're celebrating. On Monday, he gets a phone call from the local TV affiliate in Des Moines, Iowa. They had heard about what was going, had gone on that night and wanted to interview Joel about it. So Joel cleans up his office, puts on his suit, and waits for them to show up. They show up, and it's a cameraman and a, a reporter, uh, a woman. And they engage, engage in some pleasant conversation, and then the, the light of the camera goes on, and she starts the interview, and she says this, Is it true that you lured 200 teenagers with, with, uh, with pizza and soda and locked them into the gym, forced them to hear your message, and refused to let them go until they came to know who Jesus was? He was stunned. He tried to reply. I mean, he tried to give a rebuttal, but he wasn't ready. He wasn't thinking. And they ran the story all across Iowa that way. Now, what's amazing is the people of the community, even those that didn't go to the church, rallied around him. And they said, that's not how it happened. Not at all. And it ended up being a tremendous testimony for Christ because he was suffering for righteousness' sake, even when his reputation was (coughs) suffering because of it. 
Are we willing to do that? Can we maintain our conscience clearly when we're being misaligned and let God be our defender? Or do we always have to try to take things into our own hands and do it ourselves? See, Jesus remained silent. He also responded to accusations wisely. See, that's what it means. When we have accusations come at us, see, Jesus didn't respond to the accusations that weren't true, but he did respond to the one that was. Now, we must make sure that we are responding to accusations wisely, knowing when to speak or when to be silent. We must make sure that we are not answering fools according to their folly, as the proverb says. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. When we are dealing with accusations, we must know when to speak and when to be silent, asking God to give us wisdom to know the difference. There are times when people will try and goad us to make us look foolish, to trap us in an argument. There are times when we need to speak and testify to Christ, and there are times when we must learn to be silent and let God do the talking for us. Jesus was smart in his response, not giving the time of day to the false accusations, but when the true one came, he fully testified to that fact. And when he spoke, he laid it all on the line. I am, and you will see, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. See, he was making his confession boldly, knowing that when he did, it was a death sentence. If our faith is ever put on trial, we must make sure that we are keeping our confession courageously. Keeping our confession courageously. I mean, many of us are like Peter. We, we talk about being bold in front of in governments and rulers and things like that, but yet before even the small, seemingly insignificant servant girl, we deny our Lord. We deny Him in the everyday interactions that we have. We must learn to keep our correction courageously. See, Jesus knew that when He testified that He was the Christ, which was true, that it was a death sentence for himself. Could you do it? I'm reminded of, the, uh, of a bishop of Smyrna, which is now modern Turkey, in the year 155, a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp, uh, the Smyrnans, demanded Polycarp's execution because he was a Christian. He was taken to the proconsul. On hearing this was Polycarp, the proconsul said to him, or sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, have respect to your old age, and other similar things. The proconsul urged him, saying, Swear to Caesar, and I'll set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared this, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then I, can I blaspheme my king and my savior? But the proconsul pressed him again and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered. Since you are vainly urgent that, as you say, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, this is Polycarp talking, and pre- pretended not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and you shall hear them. The guy's facing death. And he says, hey, you want to know more about Jesus? <laughs> Let's talk about it. But the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed with fire, burned at the stake, seeing you despise wild beasts. If, and if you don't do that, I'm going to throw you to the to the lions. Polycarp said to him, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished. But are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. They burned him at the stake. Church tradition even says that it was, instead of being an awful smell, it was a sweet smell. 
Some even say that the the blood of Polycarp caused the flames to to be extinguished. And then he was stabbed to death publicly in front of everyone. Here is an 86-year-old man testifying to the greatness of who Jesus was. Or even Perpetua, who was a young mother who was convicted of being a, a Christ follower. She had just had a baby. This is in early church history. She had just had a baby. The baby was being brought to her while she was languishing in prison so she could feed the baby. Her father pleads with her because they were going to be taken in front of the lions. And she says to him, Father, why do you try to persuade me thus? I am a Christian. I cannot change who I am. So the day of the execution comes, and they led the prisoners out naked in front of the entire Colosseum, and the crowd was gasped because they could see that she just had a baby. They demanded her be clothed, and then she was beaten and almost killed by the lions, but she languished. The people started crying out for mercy as a guard had to cut her throat as she testified about who Jesus was. Now it's going to get like that again, and it already is in some Middle Eastern countries as Christians testify to who Jesus is. There have been more martyrs in the last century alone than all of church history combined. Don't think that persecution is going to overlook you. We're all put on trial every day. And we are to follow the example of Christ who kept his, his confession courageously. We need to understand the prosecution is at war against us. We need to understand the problems of our own soul. But we need to follow the precedent of Jesus. The question is, are we doing it? How are you doing? Have you been convicted of being a Christian? If so, then may God bless you and wear that as a badge of honor. But if your co-workers and your friends and your fellow students don't know that you're a Christian, then you need to take stock of your spiritual life. The word witness simply means one who has seen and heard. And the reason that many of us fail to witness is because we have failed to see Jesus, who he is, and what he has done for us. We have to take stock of our own spiritual life, repenting of our sin, and following Jesus' example. Just like Peter, we might have failed, but praise God, there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness. There was forgiveness for Peter, even though he denied the Lord. And there's forgiveness for you. If you've denied him by your your words or by your lifestyle, there's forgiveness. Ask God to equip you to do what he wants you to do, and he will do so for his glory and your joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you now, thankful for what you did in Christ for us. Lord, as we can see that our faith is on trial, whether it's in our public school system, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's in our family get-togethers, sometimes in our own home, may we continue to testify to your greatness by loving you, knowing, Lord, that there is a spiritual battle going on all around us, and knowing, Lord, that we have failed all too often, too many times even to count. But, Lord, we thank you that there is forgiveness, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, just like you did with Peter as he denied you. Lord, help us not to deny you any longer, but to follow the example of Jesus. Facing hostility, or even if it means facing death, may you receive glory in our lives. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name.